All the books we own, both read and unread, are the fullest expression of self we have at our disposal. But with each passing year, and with each whimsical purchase, our libraries become more and more able to articulate who we are, whether we read the books or not. Nick Hornby Welcome to Angry Typewriter, a podcast about writing and the writing life. I'm Paul, and looking back over the episodes we've done on this podcast, I realized that I've never really talked about something every writer should be doing, collecting books. Stephen King famously said that if you don't have time to read, you don't have the time or the tools to write. But when you find a book that has both a good story and good words, treasure that book. Well, if you're going to be reading a lot, and as a writer, you better be, it simply follows that you'll want to build a book collection And in today's episode, we talk about how to do that. But be forewarned, once the book collecting fever gets you, be ready to buy more bookcases. Let's get started. Hard as it is to believe, I have actually been in people's houses where there was not one single book anywhere so if you have even five or six on a shelf you qualify as a collector nowadays but whether you've got five or five hundred today's episode is geared toward taking you to the next level of collecting now don't freak out when I use the word collecting because I'm not advising you to mortgage your house and run out and buy a first folio Shakespeare or a signed first printing of one of Faulkner's books. In fact, if you know me at all, I'm not going to ever recommend you buy anything by Faulkner. Stick with Hemingway. Now, if you happen to have the means to collect rare, expensive books, by all means do it. It's a much better investment of your time, resources, and legacy than just buying a boat. But what we talk about today should both appeal and apply to everyone, regardless of your financial situation or whether you've ever collected books before. There have been entire volumes written about book collecting, and they continue to be written even today. So what we talk about on this podcast is going to be a very abbreviated version of that just trying to hit some high points and to give you maybe a little information you didn't have before. If you did have it, consider a refresher. As for the best in-depth book that I would suggest, ABCs for Book Collectors by John Carter. It was originally written in 1952, but it's been revised numerous times since then, and it is the best one-volume resource that you can have for any level of book collector. Later in the episode, I'll be giving some tips that can apply to anyone trying to start a collection, regardless of what type of money you're looking to spend. 
But to start out with, I want to look at what makes a book valuable, because that is something to consider when you're starting a collection. One of the most important things to know when collecting books is that old and rare are not the same thing. Many people assume that the age of a book is what determines both its scarcity and its value, but this is really seldom the case. Antiques dealers are especially fond of putting high prices on books based solely on their age, but most antique dealers are not book experts. Rarity, and thus value, is determined by a number of factors. So while a book that's been in your family for generations may have great sentimental value to you, unless that book is a Gutenberg Bible or one of the aforementioned first folios from Shakespeare, it's probably neither rare nor all that valuable, at least monetarily. There are several variables to consider regarding a book's value, and each is important. First and foremost, condition, condition, condition. If location is the most important thing when starting a business, condition is the most important thing that determines whether a book is valuable. Always buy a book in the very best condition that you can possibly afford. A book's not valuable simply because it's old, and a very old book in poor condition is worth little or nothing. For modern editions, the condition of the dust jacket is easily as important as the condition of the book itself when determining value. I know this seems odd, but in reality, the dust jacket can account for up to 90% of the value of the book. For example, a clipped dust jacket, one where the original price on the inside cover has been clipped off, can cut the value of the book by 75% or more. For example, a first edition of Stephen King's The Shining could be worth as much as $600 or more with a perfect dust jacket. With a torn or missing dust jacket, it's worth maybe 10% of that. This is one of those rare instances where you do judge a book by its cover. Among book dealers, books are graded according to condition. Typical grades include as new, fine, very good, good, fair, poor, ex-library, and book club edition. You will often see near fine as well, and it's important to note that book club and ex-library editions have next to no value except as reading copies. The problem, especially when purchasing books on the internet, is that what one person calls fine may in fact only be good. If you're unable to personally inspect a book before buying it, at least ask for photographs of the dust jacket, binding, and copyright page. In most cases, only the first printing of a first edition is of interest to collectors. That's the reason it's important to see the copyright page. Especially for books printed in the last 20 years, the edition is typically clearly marked. There will be a series of numbers at the bottom of the page and if a one is not visible, then you probably don't have a first printing. For example, you would want to see the words first edition and then a series of numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, or some do it in this odd order 
2468109753 They just have the one on the right instead of on the left. This isn't true for all publishers, however, and it's worth the time and money to become thoroughly acquainted with the different ways some publishers identify a true first printing. And when speaking of first editions and first printings, we're always referring to the hardcover edition. The only exception to this rule is when the book has no initial hardcover run and is released only in softcover. This is rare for literary fiction, but it does occur more frequently in the mystery, science fiction, and fantasy genres. When only a paperback first edition exists, the rules regarding condition still apply. And it can be a lot harder to find a paperback in good condition after many years than a hardcover. Unless a later book was particularly notable, for example, for winning a Pulitzer Prize, an author's first book will always be the most valuable. This is because a first book is usually released with a small first print run, making the book scarce from the outset, and even more so if the author becomes popular later. J.K. Rowling is a perfect example of this. The first UK print run of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone in the U.S., was a tiny 500 copies, of which 300 went to libraries. A first printing now sells for tens of thousands of dollars. The final book in the series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, had a first print run of 12 million, assuring that this book will never be collectible unless it has Rowling's elusive signature. A book must be either scarce or rare or both to generate enough interest to cause the value to increase. Also, signed copies are, in most cases, worth more than unsigned copies. But the rules regarding condition and edition trump an autograph. In other words, while a signed first printing of the Kite Runner in fine condition can be worth up to $400 or $500, a signed copy of a fifth printing in good condition will be worth less than the original cover price. Also, always remember that signed copies of books by an author who's hot today may be overinflated and could easily drop in value as time goes on. If you want to collect signed editions, the best way is to go to signings by the author where you can have them signed for free. Some authors will sign and return copies sent to them, but this happens far less often today than it did in the past. Always check with the author before sending anything. Finally, when talking about collecting books that are considered valuable monetarily, if you are going to buy online, and in some cases, if there's a book you just have to have, there may be no other way, do your research carefully. And be aware that you should always, always, always ignore both the low and high end of the copies listed for a specific title. The listing for a very fine hardcover first printing at $199, by that I mean $1.99, is always a beat-up library copy. And the one listed for $1,000, unless it's a very rare book, is in most cases a guy just trying to get rich on people's ignorance. Research what the most recent prices were for a book that was actually sold 
if you can, rather than just listed. You can do this pretty easily on eBay and in some of the auction sites, not as easily on Amazon. So those were some tips on collecting valuable books. But value can be in the eye of the beholder. And when we come back, I'm going to give you some tips on collecting for any size pocketbook. Welcome back. So if you've stuck with me this far, you may be thinking to yourself, well, all this information is great, but I'm not going to go to Sotheby's and bid on the next lot of Mark Twain first editions that comes down the pipe. So what do I do? Well, I'm glad you asked, because in reality, there are more options open to you as a general, for lack of a better word, collector than there is for someone who specifically looks for rare, expensive editions. In fact, unless you're planning to become a full-time book dealer, you should always stick to collecting books by authors that interest you. This way, even if the value of a particular book doesn't increase, or worse, decreases, you'll still have a book in your collection that you actually want rather than something that you bought simply as a commodity. So if you're wondering where to begin in building a collection, the answer is start with what you like. Look around at the books you already have, the books you're already reading, the books you already enjoy, and that's your place to begin. There are as many types of collections as there are different types of readers. For example, I have a friend in Illinois who is a huge reader and a pretty significant book collector, but he has one specialty that he focuses on. If you go into his house, you're going to find shelves dedicated solely to books about books. If you aren't sure what books about books are, I did a podcast on that recently. Go check it out. But whenever one of those comes out, he buys one. That's one of his niche areas of collecting. Now he collects other books, but I think those are the ones that he has the most pride in. And that's an important point. Your collection is something you should be proud of, regardless of what your interests are. If you like collecting books on chess or on math or on all of the Star Wars books that have been put out, be proud of that. If some Ivy League egghead comes in and says, oh, this isn't literature, you don't need that kind of negativity. Show him the door. I know another person who is so enamored of a particular book, and I have to admit I cannot remember right now what the book is, but he loves this one book so much that he collects every edition of this book that comes out. The first hardcover, the movie tie-in version, paperback and kind of interestingly a copy of every language it has come out in now he doesn't read any of those languages he doesn't understand them but he has them on his shelves it's part of his quest and if you get right down to it the quest 
is the best part of book collecting. Sure, you could sit at home in your underwear and order every copy of every book you want from your computer. But where's the fun in that? There are times where you'll want to do that to complete a collection, but most of the time, the joy is in the hunt. I'll give you a personal example. If you've listened to my podcast for any length of time, you know that one of my favorite books ever is Carlos Ruiz Zafon's The Shadow of the Wind. And I like collecting different copies of that, especially if I can find a signed copy. Now, unfortunately, signed copies on the internet are usually a couple hundred dollars. And I don't have a couple hundred dollars just to throw around. But every time I go into a used bookstore or a thrift shop, I go immediately to the Z's in the fiction section. If I see a hardcover copy of The Shadow of the Wind, I open it up and look to see if it's the first printing. If it's the first printing, I'm going to take it. And then I turn to the page where the signature would be if Zafon signed it. Now it's very unusual for me to find a hardcover copy. Paperback copies are everywhere. It's sold like 15 million copies worldwide. But not as many hardcover copies are out there. Even fewer are first printings. And almost none have a signature. But there's that sense of anticipation just in looking. And sometimes, lightning strikes. I was in Larry McMurtry's bookstore. Well, it's actually a series of buildings. It was four buildings and has been reduced to two. In Archer City, several years ago. And I was in the fiction section. I looked for Zafon, and he didn't have any. Now, I happened later to be wandering in the fiction and translation section. And at the bottom, there was a copy of Shadow of the Wind. It turned out to be a first printing. And it turned out to be signed. And because McMurtry's bookstore had literally tens of thousands of copies of books and only two employees, yes, two, they must have bought it years and years ago, right after it first came out, and then never went back and updated the price as it went up in value. I got that $200 book for $40. That's the joy of the hunt. Now I'll admit there are times when the hunt can be frustrating. If you've gotten every copy of Sue Grafton's alphabet series, except a first printing of A is for alibi, which is the hardest one to find, you could look for decades before stumbling across one. If you absolutely have to have it to complete your collection, you may have to order it on the internet and you may have to pay a high price. But I suggest you just keep looking because that's the fun. And where do you look? Literally everywhere. Some areas of the country have more used bookstores than others. That's true. Some just have better pickings, for lack of a better word, than others do. 
But you can find books everywhere. You can find them in thrift stores. You can find them in garage sales, used bookstores, just about anywhere. Sometimes small auctions in small towns will yield a surprising number of really good books. Estate sales are another excellent resource, but you may pay a little higher price there. Regardless, if you keep your eyes open, you're going to start noticing more and more books that you probably overlooked before you started collecting. In the end, once you've started collecting, what do you have besides something that can be kind of difficult to move if you sell your house? Well, besides lifelong friends, you have what Nick Hornby said in his quote that I used at the beginning of this episode. You have a personal library that's able to articulate who you are, whether you read all the books or not. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Angry Typewriter. I hope it's been both informative and entertaining, especially for you writers out there. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I hope you'd also consider clicking on the support this podcast link on the Anchor site. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep these episodes coming, and it will also go a long way toward making this podcast completely ad-free. Thanks again.